Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And uh, it is a pleasure and honor to be with you this morning. I know there's lots of things you could be doing and places you could be right now on Easter Sunday. And the fact that you are here with us uh, means a tremendous deal to me. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you've had a wonderful time celebrating the risen Christ already. Um, today, uh, we are talking about this idea of the resurrection. And since mid-February, um, as a church, we entered into this season in the church calendar called Lent. And the word Lent literally means springtime. And it's traditionally a time of preparation leading up to Easter. It's a time when we symbolically return to the wilderness where Jesus spent 40 days readying himself for ministry. Lent is a time of practice, a time of testing, and it's a time of preparation for new life, renewal, um, new possibilities, and transformation. And so together we've journeyed in our own day-to-day -day life. We've been waiting and inviting and, and hoping and, and crying out for this day to come, and today is the day we've been waiting for. It is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Amen. It's Resurrection Sunday. But what exactly does this mean for us today, for our world? Uh, it's a really good question that we're going to look at today. Um, but before we do, let's pause and let's just open our time up in prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, as we even just pause for a moment to breathe and, and recognize your presence, we celebrate the resurrection. Something that was dead come back to life, transforming everything as we know it. This morning as we celebrate, as we ponder what this means for us in our own individual day-to-day -day lives, we pray that you would open up your word to us, you'd help us to hear from you, challenge us, encourage us, help us to continue in the celebration of what this day means to us and to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, in order to get at this question, we are going to look at the Gospel of Mark, starting with chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So, if you have a Bible, you could go ahead and open up to that. If you don't, no worries. The text will be displayed on the wall behind me, and you can follow along that way. We're going to start with Mark chapter 16, with verse 1. It says this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him talking about Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed, understandably so. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So these ladies went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, right off the bat, there's a very interesting statement in this text spoken by the angel to these women that I want us to notice. The angel says to these three ladies, 
he is not here. Uh, the angel's talking about Jesus Christ to these three women and says, he's not here. And what's interesting about this phrase is that it actually functions on two levels. On the first level, it's pretty basic. It's talking about Jesus not there in the tomb. He's gone. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not here. We get this. But there's another level that this statement functions on. And to understand this second level, we have to understand something about the ending of Mark's gospel. You see, Mark's gospel ends at verse 20 in most of your Bibles. But what we just looked at was up through verse 8. Now, in the original version of the gospel of Mark, the ending is verse 8. The very last verse that we read about these women leaving, terrified. So many years later, the community began to add other stories to Mark's gospel to kind of fill out the ending because verse 8 with them all leaving terrified is kind of an abrupt ending, right? And what this means is that in the original text of the gospel of Mark, there's no post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in the way it was originally written. And so all we get are these women coming to the tomb. This angel says he's not here, and they leave afraid, freaked out, and that's the end of the story. And even today we go, that's not exactly the satisfying ending I'm looking for, <laughs> right? Now, to be clear, it's not to say what is written since then, verse 8 through 20, is not true. It's absolutely true, but I do think it's very interesting that Mark originally wrote his gospel to end with verse 8. And I think he did so deliberately. And that's because I think this phrase, the statement, he's not here, is actually functioning on another level, and that is that we are not to look for Jesus simply in the pages of this book. In other words, we don't have to go back 2,000 plus years to look for Jesus because he's not there. And if we're looking for God right now, we don't look in here. He's not in here. He's here right now. He's resurrected. So what Mark does that the other Gospels don't do is that he's actually trying to focus our attention on something other than the actual physical resurrection that happened. The other Gospel writers focus a lot of time and energy on this. Mark does not. So for Mark, it's sort of like when you throw a stone into the water. Let's see if my slide works magical technology. Can you see it? Isn't that beautiful? Doing nothing. So imagine a stone that is being thrown into the water. And what happens is that instantaneously when it hits the water, then it disappears and vanishes. But the effect of that stone radiates. Radiate! Look at that. Slow motion even. Yeah. Where other people skimp we splurge. Uh, as you picture this, I want you to think of the effect the stone has on the water. The waves ripple out, and they go endlessly until they hit the shore. And in a sense, the impact of the resurrection is sort of this stone hitting the water. There's this dramatic, amazing, powerful event, but then there's this after effect that continues beyond it. And that after effect is the response of the people who confront the resurrection. And this encounter is the wave that radiates throughout history. And even right now in this room, this morning, all of us are part of that ripple effect, if you will. And the Gospel of Mark is far more interested in talking about the ripple effect 
than it is the actual stone. And so then the question is, what is the effect of the resurrection, especially today? And verse 8, this very last verse of the original version of the Gospel of Mark, tells us something about the effect the resurrection had on these three ladies. So let's look at it again. It says, So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So it would seem that the primary effect of the resurrection, according to this text, is fear. Right? It was scary. We got the word afraid. We got terror packed in there. There's amazement. Uh, but if you have an NIV, that word amazement's translated as bewildered. So you got fear and confusion as the effect of the resurrection. Awesome, right? Not exactly what we call satisfying. It's not like, oh, you know what I need more in my life? I need more fear and confusion, right? What I would like to suggest to us this morning is that this translation is not as helpful as it could be. It's not that it's wrong. It's what I would say is a little thin on what it's trying to portray. And so what I want us to do is look at three of these words describing the effect of the resurrection so that we can see what Mark's actually trying to communicate to us is something far different than fear and confusion. So this first word I want us to look at is the word afraid. The actual Greek word is called phobeo. Can I hear you say phobeo? Phobeo, nice word. Now phobeo is a word that means fear, but not necessarily the way we would generally use the word fear. Most of us use the word fear to describe like a shark attack or feel that feeling when you're watching a horror film or the thought of a terrorist attack or another school shooting like we've had recently that that wells up a sense of fear but here in this text this word fear is used actually primarily to talk about awe and reverence recently i had the opportunity to do something incredible and in that i got to go with three other guys to the grand canyon and we've all seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. Um, there's nothing like seeing it in person. Um, day one of this trip, we hiked down seven miles in about five and a half hours to the bottom, covering a change of elevation about 5,000 feet. The night we rested, because we were still alive, and I ate the best bag of freeze-dried lasagna I knew was ever imaginable. <laughs> um, I saw more stars in the sky that night than I ever imagined possible. And the next morning I did wake up, amazingly, and we climbed back up covering 10 miles in just under seven hours with the same 5,000 square, uh, 5,000 foot change in elevation. And I honestly, with, even with all the photos I have as proof, it's hard for me to believe that I accomplished this. Um, and it's hard for me to comprehend still all of what I got to see and experience. Over and over again, I found myself stopping and wanting to take in the fabeo, the awe of the beauty that surrounded me at every moment. And that's the tone of this first word translated afraid. It's more of a tone of awe and reverence. Now, the second word is this word terror. 
And to be clear, it's fine to translate this word in the Greek as terror, but the word is actually traumas. And in the Greek, the word traumas means literally to tremble. And so you can imagine, right, that we can tremble as a result of fear, but you can also tremble for all sorts of other reasons, like when it's cold outside, or when you're excited, or when you're angry, or when you're stressed, or you're waiting in great anticipation, right? All these are things that could cause us to tremble. And I think these ladies were trembling from a totally different experience and reason than that of being afraid. And the evidence of this, I believe, is found in this third word, and that's the word that's translated amazement, or the NIV as bewildered. This word uh, is what I refer to as a domesticated translation of a word. It's toned down from the original translation of the Greek, and it's used here to describe the resurrection effect on these people. And the actual word in the Greek is this word ecstasis. Can you all say ecstasis? Ecstasis. And you might be able to imagine what word we know that comes from it. It's the word ecstasy. And now you can probably see why maybe they didn't translate it this way. In our culture, we usually associate ecstasy with drugs and sex. And so we probably want to have that disconnected from the whole resurrection story, right? Like it makes sense that we might not use that term. And again, translating it as amazement isn't wrong. It's just muted. It's, it's kind of dialed down from its original meaning. But the actual effect of the resurrection on these women is ecstasy. And ecstasy and amazement or bewilderment in my mind are worlds apart. And so if you think about it, amazement is the effect of a detached observer. So even when I'm seeing the Grand Canyon and I say, I find this place to be amazing, um, it's this cognitive statement of enjoyment, right? I'm, I'm speaking to something cognitively and talking about it. Ecstasy, though, is anything but detached. It's totally immersive. You're utterly engulfed. Your entire body experiences ecstasy, and it's such a radically different experience than that of amazement and definitely of that of bewilderment. And so when we look at the scriptures, though, and we look at these moments of ecstasy, what we find is that it's typically described as when someone has lost their mind, right? You, you, we see that phrase, my mind is blown, or you're out of your right mind, or lost your mind. I was going to put an emoji there, but I decided to keep the emojis out. Um, but it's this idea of being out of our right mind. Your rational thoughts are no longer fully there, in the way that they should be, or the way that you are used to having them be there. And to be clear, it's not that you've lost access to your rational mind, or that it's no longer intact. That's what scripture would describe as someone who's gone mad, right? They can't access their rational mind. But in ecstasy, your rational mind is still completely intact. It's still totally accessible. You've just been thrown beyond the gravitational pull, if you will, of your rational mind. It's like your heart is bursting way beyond it. It doesn't get rid of it. It just goes far beyond what you'd ever imagine. That's what these women are experiencing. And I want to share a couple examples to you of the times where I experienced ecstasy. And just so we're clear, this had nothing to do with drugs at the moment. So, um, first example of ecstasy I will never forget. 
was when I was standing in a similar place like this, and the center aisle, and, and these center doors opened, and my then fiance, Jennifer Richards, was escorted down to me on my wedding day. And um, that was this moment of ecstasy. It's still a blur in my mind. I was trembling. I was in awe. Um, I was out of my right mind, truly. Um, but fully present to something that was radically transforming my life. Nick, here's a little picture of that moment. Ah, so pretty. Uh, Another example was when my wife gave birth to our first child, my daughter, Gladys. We didn't know if we were having a boy. We didn't know if we were having a girl. We really didn't know what we were doing or what we were getting ourselves into. But that moment my little girl uh, was born and I was able to pick her up and shout, It's a girl! Uh, my life was transformed. And that moment was a moment of ecstasy. I was trembling, I was in awe, I was completely out of my right mind, and yet absolutely fully present to something I had never experienced before. I had a similar experience when my son Jack was born. It's just transformative. And that's the thing with ecstasy that we need to be clear about. Ecstasy is not something God gives to his people just for a, a pleasurable experience. It's not like he's like, you know what, you need a good high, I'm going to give you a state of ecstasy. That's not what this is about. However, whenever God does uh, give an ecstatic experience or state to someone, it always has a purpose, and that purpose is for transformation, which is amazing. A couple examples of this include uh, when Adam was made by God, and God said, no longer is it good for this guy to be on his own. And so God does something. He, he puts Adam into what the scripture says is a deep sleep or a trance. And that phrase, a deep sleep, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, is the exact same word here, ecstasis. God put Adam into a state of ecstasy beyond his rational mind, and it's out of that ecstasy that God brought a new order of life, an extraordinarily beautiful order of life called a woman. Another example of this is seen in the story of Abraham. Abraham met with God for the very first time, and they began to talk, and God decided he wanted to make a covenant with Abraham, so he puts Abraham in this deep sleep or trance. Again, it's the same word, ecstasis. God puts Abraham in a state of ecstasy, and it's out of that that God created a new covenant, a new relationship, a new promise, and a new order of being. So this word, ecstasis, in the scripture is always followed with some sort of new transformation and new way of living. And so what I'd like to suggest to you all is that these women, when they confronted the reality of Jesus no longer in the tomb but raised from the dead, they were not terrified. They were transformed. The text says in Mark 16, verse 8, that they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. But I think if we were to retranslate this phrase according to the words we just studied, we might read it more like this. 
So they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling with ecstasy. They were utterly speechless and full of awe. Now, I don't know about you. I sure like this a lot better than terrified and confused. So what? Big deal. We just studied a bunch of Greek. Who cares? Well, the question I have is that I wonder when was the last time you trembled with a sense of awe, a sense of ecstasy because of a relationship with God? When have you felt transformed by your relationship with God? And I think that's a really good question for us to ask because for the majority of our city, those who go to church, church has become a habit. And we have forgotten these experiences. We may be so caught up in the habits of our rational mind that the thought of ecstasy and a relationship with God is simply not an option or even available. And that's not true. I'm actually convinced that this experience of the resurrection is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago with these three ladies. It's actually something that's happening literally right now. And it's for us today, in every moment, in every breath of our life, God is offering each and every one of us and initiating and inducing this kind of experience. But it's up to us to pay attention to to orient ourselves towards it, to surrender to it, to accept it right here and right now so that God can transform us here and now. And so with that, I want, to, I want us just to pause for a moment. And I invite you in this pause to close your eyes and, and just take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Take one or two of those deep breaths. Close your eyes and just do that. how transformative that breath is. I mean, it may seem like nothing. It may seem like routine, like something not worth paying attention to. But imagine if for a moment you didn't have another breath to breathe. Or if all of a sudden you can't breathe. That would change things, right? We are alive right now, each and every one of us right here. We are all alive right now as a gift of God. We did nothing to deserve it. The breath we have, and God gives it to each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not, with a purpose. Do you believe that? We are literally, each and every one of us in humanity, are constantly being resurrected by the grace of God in every single breath, whether you realize it or not, whether you're paying attention to it or not whether you even think about it, the very breath, the Spirit of God is giving us the gift of life right now, each and every one of us. How? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one that can give us this gift. He is, as the Scripture says, the resurrection and the life, the only one to conquer the power of sin and death. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, he did it for all of us, and everyone else you ever come into contact with past, present, future. And it's God's desire that every one of us would live out every breath that we are given as a gift to the full. Can you imagine what life would look like in our world if every single one of us saw each and every breath that we have as a gift of grace from God? If we lived our life 
at every moment as an offering of thanks to the one true God who gave us that life, that breath to breathe. This is really easy to talk about, but recently on this Grand Canyon experience, I I got to experience more of the reality of this because in my trip to the Grand Canyon, there were literally times where it was really hard to breathe. And no one with me could help me. There was no breathing apparatus that anyone packed in their backpack for me. And even there, at the end of the day, if my body is done breathing, there's not much you can do, right? I need to be given breath. I need to be given life, and without it, I'm done. And so there were moments where I literally found myself needing God. And this is very different from one of those situations where you have a difficult decision to make, right? And you you want God to help you pick one or the other, right or left. This had nothing to do with choice. I was faced with the reality that the only one who could truly give me the next breath to breathe was God. I prayed more on that trip than I've ever prayed in my life. Uh, And with literally every breath, I found myself reminded of two things. One was how thankful I am to be alive in each of those moments, to actually have a breath to breathe. But the second thing I was reminded was that I wasn't alone, that God was with me, giving me that gift of life, that literally, that next breath to breathe. And with that, the opportunity to experience everything I was experiencing in that moment. In other words, none of those experiences would have happened without the breath, right? But we get so caught up in the awe of the things around us that we don't even recognize the gift that it is to even be there, alive in that moment to experience it. And so although I was surrounded by all these absolutely incredible, awe-inspiring views of creation, the real core of my ecstatic experience was first realizing that I wasn't alone, that God was giving me the gift of grace, of breath, to breathe, so I could fully experience the beauty that was around me at that very moment. And that experience has stuck with me since. Because what I found is, the truth is, is that we're always surrounded by the beauty of God's creation. Not just when we're in places like the Grand Canyon. It's everywhere. But what if we experience these truths all the time? That we're never alone, that God is with us, giving us life, a breath to breathe, so that we all can fully experience life at every moment. Can you see how transformative this would be to how we live our lives? This friends, is the ripple effect of the resurrection. This is the ripple effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. So then the question is, how do we experience this in our day-to-day life? Because if you're like me, we're busy, we get caught up, we're in traffic, we're not seeing a lot of beauty, we're not paying attention to it, we're not thinking about our breathing unless we're hyperventilating because we're so frustrated. Uh, This is a good question. And so to get at this, I want you to think about your back for your moment, your spine. And uh, if you can, the chiropractic experience. (laughs) Uh, So typically, one of the things that happens when your back gets tweaked or gets out of whack is that the muscles around your vertebrae begin to spasm. And when the muscles begin to spasm, it starts to lock everything up, um, so it's really hard to adjust. And so what chiropractors do is that they find ways to help you relax those muscles and relax your body so that the adjustments that they need to make are more gentle. 
allowing the body to be more receptive to those adjustments that need to happen. Right? It makes sense. Well, I actually think that our spiritual transformation is a lot like the chiropractic experience. Your soul, if you will, is kind of like your spinal cord, and it can easily get out of joint, it can get out of whack, and in many ways, your soul can kind of spasm and constrict and get locked up in place. And this causes us to become very resistant to the very movement of God. And so this gift of ecstasis, this gift of resurrection life, or as the, it's called in the Old Testament, this deep sleep, this is God's version of relaxing the muscles of the soul to let you breathe a little deeper, to take it easy, to get a little more relaxed. And as you do, you are able to relax into the movement of God and that experience of God who's trying to make subtle manipulations into your soul to allow you to experience new life and freedom once again. And I say that because if I'm being honest, prior to this experience going to the Grand Canyon, I wasn't even fully aware of how locked up and tight I was. How so much of what I was experiencing in life had grown into these ruts of habit. And I say that to you because if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling constricted or grieving or addicted or spiritually locked up in any way, my invitation to you is just to simply pay attention to those moments, maybe seconds of awe, where you find yourself trembling, where you experience something of ecstasy, even for a split second, because I believe that's God trying to get your attention. He wants to connect with you. It's as if he's saying, just take a deep breath and give thanks for the gift of life and grace and surrender to God's initiative to bring you new life. My friend Dan is letting me try out his uh, iWatch, which is awesome. And uh, for some reason, it has this feature. Every once in a while, it, it moves, and I look at it, and it says, stop what you're doing and take a deep breath. And I don't know why, I don't know if it knows something about me that I don't know, um, but it likes to stop me at random moments and tell me to take a breath. And the first time it happened, I was kind of freaked out about it. Um, but now it's the most amazing gift because I get so caught up. And so sometimes I just need someone else to tell me, just pause. And it reminds me, God is with me, that the moment I'm in, even if it's the most frustrating moment, is a gift. I'm here for a reason, and I have a breath to breathe, and it's because of the resurrection and the life. We need to be reminded of it, and we need to surrender to that initiative of him reminding us he's right here with us. And this allows us then in those moments, over and over again, again and again, to experience the resurrection. Now, back to our story. Remember, these women never saw Jesus raised from the dead. Yet they experienced this experience. All they got was being told Jesus was raised from the dead, and then immediately this experience was available to them. And so every one of us in this room who don't get the opportunity to see Jesus raised from the dead, we have the very same opportunity to accept and experience exactly what these women did. We don't actually get to see Jesus, but confronting the reality of this gift of new life springing up offers us that same experience right now at every moment for all of us at any moment, even if we're in a really difficult place. The resurrection literally 
changes everything. And it can change you too, right now. But again, in order for this to happen, we have to choose to orient ourselves towards Jesus. We need to receive Jesus as the true giver of life, the breath of life, the gift of grace, and start experiencing that relationship that happens with God as a result. I'm going to invite our worship and prayer team to come forward. And as they do, I have a few questions for you to ponder. And so if you have your bulletin, if you could pull that out, there's a connection card in there, and you can flip it on the back, and there's some spaces there for you to respond. These are just some questions of reflection for thought. And so what I would love for you to do, if, if you'd be willing just to even answer one of these, that'd be great. And as you leave, you could drop it in one of the wood boxes. Uh, there's no right or wrong to any of these, so you don't have to worry about that either. But first question, how would you describe the state of your soul? Is it stuck? Is it tight? Is it spasming? Is it hurt or open or flexible or free or healthy or whatever word it is? I would love to hear how you would describe that. Second question, when was the last time you encountered an experience like this with God? Maybe it's only been once or twice. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it's never. Maybe it's literally right now for the very first time. You just took a breath and you recognized what it was in a whole different way. The Spirit of God, the resurrection in life, giving it to you and you're experiencing it at the moment. Number three, what's keeping you from orienting yourself to these types of encounters with God? Or maybe the other way of putting it, what's getting in the way or distracting you from encountering God. So I would love to hear from you, whether it's just answering one or a couple of these. And again, as you go, you could drop that card in one of the wood boxes. That would be great. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to pray for you. Um, so please take a moment to do that. But what I want us to remember is that for us right now, this encounter, we might be experiencing for the very first time. Um, and for others here, we're experiencing it again. Maybe it was something we had forgotten and we're reminded of it and we're celebrating it. Or maybe it's something we, we find ourselves very attuned to and aware of all the time. And that's awesome as well. What I want you to hear is as a church, um, this is a safe place. We do not have this thing all figured out. We are all a work in progress. And so whether you're experiencing this for the first time or for the hundredth time, it doesn't matter. We're in this process-oriented, long-term relationship with God, and we invite you, whatever place you're in, to be here. And if you have questions, we would love to hear from you. Write it on those cards. Let us know. Come talk to us afterwards, because we would love to answer questions. You should have questions. It's not easy to understand. But we want to grow. We want to walk together and encourage one another, and we hope that you feel encouraged to do the same. As the band is up here, uh, in a moment they're going to start playing instrumentally. They'll give you a little more time to jot down any thoughts or questions that you have or responses to these questions. And the prayer team is also up here. So if you have any means, any thoughts, questions, maybe you don't even know, you just want prayer, they are here for you. Please take advantage of that. But in a moment after he's played music for a little bit, Brian will invite us to stand and sing a song of response um, as we again take a moment to celebrate the resurrection and the life. But before we do, let me just close us in prayer.
Father, Son, Spirit, as we breathe our very breath, something we do so often and don't even think about it. We are reminded that you are here with us, that this is a gift that you have given us. It is grace. You constantly give it to us, this gift, over and over again. We did nothing to deserve it. We recognize with that breath, there's nothing that we can do on our own to receive it. We need you, Jesus, the resurrection and the life, to give us life. You're the only true giver of life. And we celebrate the resurrection today because we know that you and you alone give it to us. We thank you that in light of this resurrection, Holy Spirit, you are with us. And as a result, we are never alone. So we ask that you would help us to experience that reality more and more with every breath that the gift of this breath is allowing us to experience all that you have for us to the full in every moment. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would help every one of us to experience this gift of your divine grace that can only come through your resurrected Son, Jesus. Help us all to be transformed and to be something of this continued ripple effect of the resurrection that is consistently and constantly reaching outward to transform the world and each and every one of us with your love and with your grace. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.